and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Jonah was used of God to save Nineveh, but it made him miserable. Teaching team member Bob Cargo finishes the series Jonah into the depths of God's heart and ours with this sermon entitled Redemption and Resentment, which covers Jonah chapter 4. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. But he displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made a haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast to love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pay attention to the screen and would you prayerfully read with me this prayer of illumination? Father, you give us the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your word. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. You know, there are uh, several books of the Bible that have a rather abrupt ending, a surprise ending, a truncated ending. But I think of all the books of the Bible of which that is true, the book of Jonah takes the cake. (laughs) This one gets the blue ribbon at the county fair of abrupt endings and surprise endings of books of the Bible. You come to the end of this and you wanna say, well, where's the rest of the story? What happens next? What's the point? What a strange ending and what a strange story, right? In case you're new, let me review for you what this is all about. God comes to Jonah and tells him to go to Nineveh to preach. That would be to his east. And so what does Jonah do? He runs as fast as he can to the west trying to get away. God comes to grab him and forces him to come back. Though he's wandered away like a wandering child, God forces him to comply. And he goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And he preaches what I think is, in my opinion, still that word of warning. 
And though he gives them this word of warning, they intuit and they guess that this God of judgment may also be a God of grace and mercy. And so they don't know anything about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They don't know Yahweh. They don't know anything about the sacrificial system in the temple and all those things that prefigured the the sacrifice of Christ for us. But still, they repent, and God saves the whole city. If this were a Billy Graham crusade, I would imagine Billy Graham would have said, it was an outstanding crusade. But Jonah is not like Billy Graham. Jonah is very unhappy about all this repenting that's going on. Jonah, in fact, as he sees thousands and thousands and thousands of Assyrians repenting and being spared, he is extremely angry. What in the world is going on here? What's up with this prophet named Jonah? What kind of guy is he? And the answer is, he is a prophet who is very human and very fallen and very sinful. In fact, he is a lot like me, and he's a lot like you. Uh, He is like every one of us in this room. Throughout this whole story, Jonah is filled with these three things. He is filled with fear, with anger, and with resentment. And all of that comes to a head as as he sees these people repenting. And he goes up on the hillside hoping that they won't repent and that God will destroy them. Let me, ever, let me ask you, have you ever experienced fear, anger, or resentment because of the providential, loving work of God? I don't know about you, but I have. And about you have, too. Let me give you a statement and then ask you a question. The statement will be one of the most important sentences of this sermon, so I hope it sticks with you. The statement is this, our resentments reveal our idols. Our resentments reveal, they expose, they lay bare our idols. Let me ask you this question. What is it these days for you? This making you fearful or angry or is filling you with resentment? It's a sign that points to your idol. I also want you to hear the good news from the very beginning of this sermon. The good news is that God has sent a greater Jonah to us. Someone like Jonah in some ways, someone very different from Jonah in other ways. And because of his work, the work of Jesus, he can set us free from our fear and our anger and our resentment. What does that work look like? It looks like two things. Hear me very well. It looks like forgiveness and it looks like alignment. Praise God that it looks like forgiveness because every one of us in the room need that forgiveness. But I would also put forth to you today that the work of that greater Jonah, the work of Jesus, is to bring our hearts into alignment. Like a chiropractor getting someone's spine in alignment, he wants to get our hearts in alignment with three things, his word and his will, his grace and his compassion, and his call and his kingdom. When our hearts are aligned with those three things, my friends, we will find our hearts full of joy in what God calls us to do. Here is the big idea of today's message. You'll see it here on the screen. You'll also have it on your app if you're following the notes in your app function. And here it is. Here's the big idea of today. Being submissive to God's word and God's will and being transformed by God's compassionate grace will lead us 
to be aligned with the radical nature of God's global kingdom. This is the work of Jesus in us and for us. Now, that's a mouthful. I want it to stick with you. So, would you bear with me? Would you read that aloud with me, please? Sort of a liturgical moment in the sermon. Being submissive to God's word and God's will and being transformed by God's compassionate grace will lead us to be aligned with the radical nature of God's global kingdom. This is the work of Jesus in us and for us. We want to look at all of that today by looking at three ideas that support it. That is God's word, God's grace, and God's kingdom. So that's where we're going. The title of this series is is deeper into God's heart and ours. And if chapters one through three haven't exposed to us the heart of God and our own hearts, (laughs) chapter four certainly will. So let's dig in as we look. First of all, it's this, God's word and God's will. God's word and God's will. And what I would exhort you to do is this, be submissive to God's word and will and keep learning it more deeply. God's word and God's will. Be submissive to God's word and will. And the second part is so important, keep learning it more deeply. See, all this begins with understanding his will by understanding and receiving his word. Let's review what happens in chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, some of Amittai. Then chapter 3, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, here was Jonah's problem in relation to the Word of God. It surprised him. It rattled his cage. It upended his categories and assumptions. It exposed his idols and the affections of his heart that didn't reflect God's heart. And every problem that Jonah encounters in this book, and there are lots of them, right? Ever been swallowed by a big fish and then vomited out? I don't think so. Every problem he encounters starts with this, that he simply wasn't submissive to the Word of God, and he wasn't willing to let the Word of God take him deeper into the heart of God. Now, Jonah experienced the Word of God, given that he was an Old Testament prophet. He experienced the Word of God as a direct revelation. We have something even better. We experience the Word of God as a written revelation, the scriptures of the Old Testament and the New. The Bible says in the New Testament, all scriptures God breathed, it's inspired, is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice there's an upbuilding part of the word, and there's a part of the word that tears us down. In fact, when the word of God came to Jeremiah, he said, I'm giving you this word for tearing down and for building up. I just said it earlier, and I'll say it again. The Word of God does two things. It comforts the afflicted, and it afflicts the comfortable. So my exhortation to you is this. Go deeper and deeper in God's Word. Look for Christ Jesus in the Word of God, and let Christ in the Scriptures bring comfort to your worried and tired and broken heart. Let the Word of God do that for you. And also, my exhortation to you is this. Let the Word of God rouse you out of your comfortable places. Don't be like Jonah. Instead, let the Word of God surprise you. 
Let it rattle your cage. Let it upend your categories and your assumptions. Let it confront your idols and destroy your idols. Let me tell you a little story that came from my days of seminary. I attended Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. The shorthand version of that is TEDS because Trinity Evangelical Divinity School is just too long to say. So I went to TEDS, and as I was there, I met a student who had transferred there from Princeton Theological Seminary, very different seminaries. And I was standing one day in line with him at the sandwich and coffee shop on campus, and knowing that he used to be at Princeton and now had come to TEDS, I said, what do you see is the difference between these theological environments? And I'll have to confess, and I'll give you a warning, his answer I didn't like, his answer made me uncomfortable, but the more I thought about it, I think his answer was true, and it's accurate, and it's right on target. He said, the difference is this. Theological liberals don't take the Word of God literally, and too often we evangelicals don't take the Word of God seriously. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, when a theological liberal sees something in the Bible they don't like, they find an intellectual way to dismiss it. When we evangelicals find something in the Word of God that we don't like, we just too simply skip over it read over it, ignore it, act like it's not in the text. What I would say to me and what I would say to you is this, may that never ever be true of you or me. May we always, no matter what the watching world thinks of us, the world on the left, the world on the right, the world in the middle, no matter what, if the Word of God says something to us, no matter how much we like it or we don't like it when we first see it, let us embrace it and believe it, and submit to it, and obey it. Be a lifelong learner of the Word of God. I heard someone say not too long ago, it's what you learn when you think you don't have anything left to learn that really changes your life. That is a great insight. And much of this message today is about things that I learned along the way when I thought I knew God's Word on a topic and then I found out I was only scratching the surface, and God took me deeper still. As you look at God's Word, it will comfort your afflicted soul, and sometimes it will upset you emotionally, but it will always be good for you. Why? Because it is the Word of God. God's Word and God's will, that's what we see in this book. Secondly, we see this, God's grace and God's compassion. Here would be my exhortation. Be amazed and in awe of God's compassionate grace and love, and let it keep transforming you. Jeff Norris, our senior pastor, already has told us several times the illustration, and I love it, of taking students to the top of the Empire State Building when he was on staff with crew. The first time he went to the top himself, he was in awe, right? The second time, he was still impressed. And the third time, it was ho-hum. And if I remember the story correctly, the fourth time, he sent the students up, and he didn't even go up himself. And his point and our point in this is to say this, never stop being in awe of the grace and compassion and love of God. The key verse of this chapter, in fact, it is the key verse of the whole book of Jonah is in chapter 4, verse 2. Look at it with me. And notice what I've put in bold. Jonah prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? I knew you'd be like this. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now let me ask you, 
how do you want God to be toward you? Tell you how I want him to be toward me, just like this. And the good news of the gospel is this, because of the life that Jesus lived for us and the death he died for us and being raised for us, this is who God is to us, and may we embrace it. Here was Jonah's problem, though. Though Jonah wanted to have this kind of a God for himself, he wanted a God of grace for himself. He only wanted the law of God to be applied to the Assyrians. He only embraced half of his message, law, not gospel. And though God could force Jonah to open his mouth, Jonah never opened his heart. And I have a suspicion that Jonah was really, deep down inside, he was like this toward himself, preaching the law, but not truly, truly embracing the gospel. The imagery I would give to you would be an imagery I first heard from a minister by the name of Jack Miller. Jonah's problem and a problem I had for many years and a problem I battle against every day is this problem, knowing the lyrics of the gospel and grace in my head, but not hearing the music in my heart. There's all the world and a difference between those two. Oh, Jonah knew the lyrics of the gospel. He knew God was like this. But his heart was not dancing to this gospel of grace. He could talk the talk of grace, but he was walking the walk of self-righteousness and superiority toward other people and legalism. And he was, my friends, a miserable man because of it and full of resentment and full of anger. My own story about grace is like a play that has two acts. The first act came when I first understood the gospel as a kid, and I understood the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for me and his love for me, and that that was my way of being forgiven of my sins and having access to heaven and being reconciled to God. I got it. But then when it came to my growth in Christ and my attempts to obey him and have biblical holiness, I embraced a lot that the Bible does say I should embrace. It's his word, and it's the work of the Holy Spirit, and it's self-discipline, and all of that is involved. But when it came to my growth in Christ, I left Jesus in the rearview mirror. I left the cross and the work of the gospel in the rearview mirror. That was for the beginning, but not for now, I thought. And a full 40 years after I was converted came act number two of the play. Morgan and I attended a conference led by Jack and Rosemarie Miller. It was a study of the book of Galatians. And it was about the centrality of grace and of the gospel for everyday Christian living and for our growth and holiness. And I will never forget it at this five-day conference on day number two or number three. I can remember it as if it were last week, exactly where I was sitting in the room. Margaret Ann is sitting next to me, and she leans over to me and says, is all of this true? I said, yes, it is. And then she said, I've never heard this before. And I want to tell you, not only had I been her, her, her husband for 10 years, I'd been her preacher for 10 years. And she had never heard it. And I thought, I've missed something huge. I failed to talk about something that is so central. And beginning on that day, every day of my life since then, I've tried to listen for the music of the gospel in my heart. It's probably not another way to say this better than a poem I shared with you many, many years ago, over a decade ago now, if I remember correctly, by John Bunyan, who was the author of Pilgrim's Progress. And this is what he said. 
Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. In other words, the law tells us what to do, but it gives us no power to do it. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly. Flying's better than running. It bids us fly, and it gives us wings. My friends, that's the power of the gospel in our lives every single day. Let me ask you, does the message of the cross melt your heart? Does the message of the cross move your soul toward obedience and holiness? Does the message of the cross make your heart dance in such a way that you want to open your mouth and joyfully, not resentfully, joyfully share that good news with somebody else? Always remember that the work of the gospel is centered on Jesus. I love these words from the famous Scottish minister, Robert Murray McShane. This is what he said, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace, and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love, and repose in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Amen and amen. Having our hearts aligned with God's will and God's word, having our hearts aligned with God's grace and God's compassion, the third thing we see in Jonah 4, if we're going to be saved from anger and resentment and all those kinds of things, is this, God's call and God's kingdom. Here's how I would say it. Be willing to be a conduit of this same amazing grace that has come to you and that has changed you and which you do not deserve and embrace the discomfort, confusion, and rejection that will come with seeking first his global kingdom. Now, that's a mouthful, so let me read it for you again if you would listen carefully. Be willing to be a conduit of this same amazing grace has come to you. It has changed you, but you don't deserve it. And now embrace the discomfort, confusion, and rejection that will indeed come with seeking first his global kingdom. You see, for Jonah, this call of God, it was confusing, it was uncomfortable, it was more than uncomfortable. It was loathsome. He hated it. And he knew that it would lead to his being rejected by his family and his friends. Let me explain what that means. Uh, Caleb and Jeff have explained it, but I'll explain it again. The best way for me to explain it is this. When our kids were little, we found a little children's book about the book of Jonah. And here was the opening line of this children's book about the book of Jonah. It said, once upon a time, there was a little mouse named Jonah. And one day, God told Jonah to go to Cat City. <laughs> That's the idea on this book. For a mouse to go to Cat City is to go to a place that there are mean, angry, strong enemies that want to destroy you. And that's what's happening in this book. You see, the Assyrian kingdom was the powerful kingdom in the Middle East at this time. And they were cruel, cruel people. And everyone in Israel was fearing that indeed what was going to happen was that Assyria was going to come and conquer and destroy Israel, and that's just exactly what happened. And I have to tell you, part of the reason it happened is because Jonah came and print, preached, and they were spared. And Jonah knew 
that doing this would make him the most hated prophet in Israel. The reality is this, Jonah loved his own comfort, and Jonah loved his own reputation, and Jonah loved the approval of the people around him more than he loved the salvation of sinners and the expansion of the kingdom of God and more than he loved the glory of God. My friends, that's something every one of us in this room will wrestle with all the time. Do I love the expansion of the kingdom and the glory of God and the salvation of sinners more than my own comfort, my own reputation, and my own approval by, in the eyes of other people? Jonah sat on that hillside angry and resentful because he could not bear the thought of embracing his shared humanity with these dogs, these Gentile dogs who were Assyrians. And not only a shared humanity, but now a shared faith and a shared experience of the grace of God. And it was just too much for him. The story of the vine and the worm is so important in all of this. Basically, God uses the vine to say to Jonah, oh, Jonah, you are very capable of compassion, but your compassion is self-centered. That's the problem. The book of Jonah, my friends, is a call of God for us to obey what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said this, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And that's what Jonah was called to do for the expansion of the kingdom. And you know what? That's what God's calling us to do, for the expansion of the kingdom and the glory of God. Someone recently sent me an article written by a man by the name of Dr. Russell Moore. He's a theologian and pastor and a commentator on all kinds of current political and cultural issues. And he's written an article with a funny title. It's called, When the South Loosens Its Bible Belt. It's an article basically about a trend, and that is of more and more Southerners who would call themselves evangelicals, but they stopped going to church, and they've really stopped looking to the Bible to determine what they do and what they believe, but they would still call themselves evangelical believers. And in that article, Dr. Moore has four sentences that perfectly describe what's going on with Jonah. This is what he says. There's a world of difference between confident and combative Christianity. Confident Christianity constantly reminds us that this life is less important than the next. It demonstrates something of what it means to forgive and serve one another and be on mission together within a true physical local body of believers. Combative Christianity, quote unquote, tries to differentiate us culturally, politically, or racially from those deemed to be the irredeemable enemies. For Jonah, the Assyrians were irredeemable enemies, but they were not for the Lord. For the Lord, they were redeemable, and he turned them from enemies into his people. The book of Jonah, my friends, is a call for us to look to our enemies and love them and serve them, and joyfully give them the good news of Jesus. This book of Jonah screams that God's kingdom is a global kingdom. Jonah didn't understand that. Israel didn't understand that. And that's one of the main reasons judgment came to Israel through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians. They didn't get it, that God's kingdom is a global kingdom. 
And even more so now, God is forging into one body of believers, people who are different from one another, culturally and politically and racially and in every other way. But what binds them together is the kingdom of God and the grace of Jesus. And how will the world know that really disciples of Jesus, Jesus said it this way, because you love one another and because you love this watching world and you're willing to take to them my grace. That's how they'll know. My word. If there's ever a book of the Bible that comforts the afflicted, it's the book of Jonah. I squirm every time I read it. But every time I read it, it's good. But not only does the book of Jonah afflict us in our comfort, the book of Jonah comforts us in our affliction, especially if that affliction is that we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. One of the ways this book is a great comfort to me is this. Jonah was a scoundrel of a preacher, but God did not reject him. God hung on to him. And I think God changed him. I'm more of a scoundrel than Jonah was. I'm a scoundrel preacher. And my only hope is the grace of God that he would not reject me, but that he would work patiently with me and keep forgiving me and keep changing me little by little more into the image of Jesus. The way I would summarize what this whole thing is about in terms of Jesus as our greater Jonah and what God will do for us is this. Our empowerment for this, I said, as our calling for the Great Commission, our motive for this, and our source of forgiveness when we fail in this, is the greater Jonah, raised on the third day, but fully embracing the redemption of detestable people like each of us. He was submissive to the Father's will, not like Jonah, was and is the perfect embodiment of God's compassionate love and grace, and he is the loving Lord of his kingdom of priests, chosen from among every tongue and people and nation and tribe, The Lord of love is our example and is our source of supernatural love for all around us and all around the world. The great commission in this book, Jesus and Jonah. Jonah ran away from God's calling. Jesus ran toward God's calling. Jonah hated the people to whom he preached. Jesus loves us to whom he preaches. Jonah descended into the belly of the whale and the fish and into the depths of the sea. Jesus descended into death itself and into Hades. Jonah reappeared after three days. Jesus was raised from the dead after three days. Jonah went up on the side of the hill, not to weep for the city, but to hope for its destruction. Jesus went outside Jerusalem on a hill, and he wept for Jerusalem, and he died on a hill outside of Jerusalem so that you would not be destroyed and I would not be destroyed. My friends, here is the gospel in the book of Jonah. I'll end with a a quote on the screen from a very influential theologian and preacher and commentator, and this is what he has said. God is both too holy and too loving to either destroy Jonah or to allow Jonah to remain as he is. And God is also too holy and too loving to allow us to remain as we are. Amen and praise God. That's the hope of the gospel in Jonah. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we confess to you today that we need this hope. 
This hope that you would not give up for us on us, this hope that you would forgive us, this hope that you would keep changing us into people who embrace a global kingdom and who understand every day that we need your grace. Lord, do your work in us. Do your work for us. And because of that, we ask you that you might do your work through us. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen. Today, between the preaching of his word and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we also have an affirmation of faith. During the afternoon service of the Day of Atonement in ancient, in ancient Judaism, the people would read the entirety of the book of Jonah. And then in reply, they would read this from Micah 7, 18 through 20. Would you read it for us with me today is our affirmation of faith. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. My friends, this is the God who we see in Jesus Christ. And this is the God who we celebrate at the table today. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.